Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to the New Books and Sports Podcast. This is Bob D'Angelo, and I'm a longtime sports journalist now working on my master's degree in history at Southern New Hampshire University. Today we'll be speaking with David Rapp, author of Tinker to Everest to Chance, The Chicago Cubs and the Dawn of Modern America. We hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome back to the New Books and Sports Podcast. Our guest today is David Rapp, author of Tinker to Everest to Chance, the Chicago Cubs, and the dawn of modern America. David, thanks so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. David spent uh, 30 years as a political journalist and uh, publishing executive in the Washington, D.C. area and was the former editor, editor of Congressional Quarterly, where he oversaw the publication's transition from print to digital publishing. I'll go ahead and talk a little bit about your background uh, academically and personally and journalistically and uh, previous books that you've written. Well, this is my first um, uh trade publishing book. Um, actually, I've been a, a journalist all my life. I started as a sports writer in high school, writing for my, covering, covering Indiana high school basketball for my local city newspaper, the Evansville Press, and um, went to Vanderbilt University, uh, got a journalism scholarship. It's called the Grantland Rice Scholarship for Young Sports Writers, something they give away once a year. It's been some, some big, but I never I got into, um, Right after that, I went into um, newspaper work on the city desk in Memphis, Cincinnati, and Pittsburgh before finally coming to Washington to work for this little magazine called Congressional Quarterly that's pretty well known inside the Beltway and hardly known at all outside the Beltway. And I was there for 25 years. That's something, too, because uh, you certainly had a journalistic career, and I also started in high school sports in, the, in my high school, so that's uh, we got a couple things in common there. And I guess... Well, I say it's, I, I say it's uh, covering high school sports. There's no better training for covering politics. Oh, well, I agree than, with that. Uh, that. <laughs> um, so growing up in Indiana, you must have been a Cubs fan. Well, actually, I grew up in southern Indiana, uh, where my parents lived, which is Cardinals country. Uh, but my father was a, a perennial graduate student. He, we, he trucked the family up to Madison, Wisconsin every summer through my entire childhood. And um, we lived across the hall from uh, a law student from Chicago who brainwashed me at the age of 10 years old into rooting for the Cubs. And I could get WGN radio on the uh, my dad's car radio in the afternoons. And so that's what I would do is listen to Ernie Banks and Ron Santo and Billy Williams. Um, lose more games than they won uh, until the late 60s when they started winning games, but uh, finally. But uh, that, was my, that was my training in, in, in Chicago Cubs misery. Yeah, and that was those days of Jack Brickhouse and Hey Hey and all that stuff. Exactly, yeah. Did you have a favorite player, Ernie Banks, Sano, anybody like that? Ernie Banks was my boyhood hero from the get-go, yeah. I just, I just uh, loved everything about him. Oh yeah, very very his positive game, guy. Game, his attitude, um, you know, just you know, the idea of uh, all I, all I ever wanted to do as a kid was play baseball, and that's how he acted. All he ever wanted to do was play baseball. Did you uh, get up to Wrigley Field a lot? 
Not as a kid, not until I was an adult, actually. Um, my dad would take me to um, Milwaukee County Stadium to see the Cubs play the Braves or down to um, St. Louis to see them play there. But it was only when I was adult that I got to Wrigley. And I, the first time I walked in there, I thought, you know, I'm home. I'm ready to move in. Just pitch a tent out there in the outfield and let me stay here forever. Absolutely. I've been there too. It's, it's, uh, you get chills. Yeah. Um, when did you, um, develop a love for writing, um, for, for history and for baseball? I guess, uh, obviously you started in high school, so you had an early start. I did. My, my dad, um, was, uh, influential in both teaching me how to, how to pitch and catch as a little kid, but also in how to, um, do research papers and which I had to do in high school and how to use a library and, and uh, just sort of follow my curiosity in that regard. Uh, and that's why I've always read nonfiction history. It's sort of what I have been doing for years. It's my escape from modern-day politics. And um, so that's what kind of led me down this path um, when I got this kind of idea to do to do this book. I was going to ask you, what drew you to those Cubs teams of the early 1900s? Well, it was, it was one of those – it was a period about um, – Five or six years ago now, right before Theo Epstein showed up, when the Cubs were going through another one of their years of, of uh, misery, and I just kept asking myself, why do what what's the grip this team still has on me after fifty years or more? And um, I started looking into their past and and uh, worked my way all the way back into the first decade of the twentieth century, which I knew very little about. I mean, I'd heard of Tinker Everson Chance, but I didn't know much about him. And go, wait a minute, this is when the Cubs were a dynasty. They were they were the biggest winners in, in baseball at the time. And um, I just started trying to get as much information as I could, and there was very little, frankly. At least not enough to satisfy my curiosity, so that's when I decided I'd better do it myself. <laughs> and you note in your book that baseball in the 1900s was either on the verge of collapse or was, was certainly in, in – um disreputable along the public just before Tinker. Yeah, that was the, uh, that was the really interesting uh, discovery. I didn't discover it, but I mean, for me to learn that this kind of uh, idea of 19th century baseball as a kind of idyllic uh, golden years, um, when in fact in the, by the 1890s, especially the mid nineties, um, it was a, it was a thug's game, frankly. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from, a woman uh, author uh, later on who uh, called it a rough and tumble game played by a nine of rowdies for the benefit of a crowd of hoodlums. <laughs> I think that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> you know, a couple of things happened uh, at the turn of the century. Um, a guy named Ban Johnson, um, who was the president of the Western League, a minor league, um, thought, saw an opportunity <clears throat> And um, he renamed his league the American League, moved it uh, to its headquarters to Chicago, and started putting teams in the big cities where the National League was had, had monopolies, and started promoting his brand of what he called clean baseball, as opposed to the dirty ball that uh, the National League was famous for at the time. Uh, and they and team and then. Um, Charlie Kaminsky, one of his buddies, moved his team from St. Paul down to Chicago on the south side of Chicago and start out, started outdrawing the, uh, the Chicago Nationals. They were called the Cubs at the time. 
Um, so the National League had to respond uh, because it was it was seriously in danger for a variety of reasons. And um, fortunately, the Cubs had just hired uh, a guy named uh, Frank Seeley to be manager to rebuild the team. And Seeley had won five pennants in Boston in the 1890s with a, his own brand of clean ball. And so uh, Chicago really became kind of the epicenter of a new movement in baseball that uh, tried to promote a, a family-friendly game that could draw people from all demographic areas and all walks of life, men, men and women uh, and children, and um, uh, really turned the game around. And then the Cubs started winning uh, in 1906, and created this dynasty. So the, uh, the phrase used by the Chicago Tribune in uh, 1906 was uh, in a headline on one of its editorials on the editorial page was called Baseball Insanity. Everyone in Chicago had gone nuts over baseball. Pennant fever. Yep. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's funny because uh, you have the clean baseball that Seeley brought to Chicago. And then on the other extreme, you had in New York, you had John McGraw, who epitomized the rowdyism of the 1890s. I mean, he was a no. Well, he wouldn't give it up. No, no. Yeah. McGraw was, uh, you know, third baseman for the Baltimore Orioles um, and became um, manager of the New York Giants. And yeah, that was his game. In fact, it was the, the word they had for um, that brand of blame was McGrawism. <laughs> Um, and his nickname was Muggsy, um, and uh, he he wouldn't give it up. He finally actually changed his uh, tune a little bit in uh, 1911 after, after he'd been thoroughly trashed by the Cubs for five straight years. He kind of tried to go through a personality makeover. I found one article where I tried to show him as one of the most benevolent, good-natured, easygoing guys in the world. Well, I'm sure his players laughed about uh, that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was, if you read the, and, and I'm sure you have, if you read the glory of, the, of their times, I mean, uh, they all had fond memories of him, but they knew he was, he was a, he was a pistol. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, um, he was, he was a, he was a, a Napoleonic type right. of a little Napoleon. I mean, he, he wouldn't let his players do anything on their own. Everything had to be by instruction from him, as opposed to Frank Chance, who was the player manager for the Cubs, who was very much a uh, a guy who was you know you you play your game as hard as you can, and and that's what he meant. He tried to keep everybody sort of at the top of their game, but he wanted them um, to make their own decisions on the field. Um, so it was an interesting kind of um, showcase of two different managerial styles at the time. Yeah. Too. Well, let's talk about the uh, baseball sad lexicon, which is written by Franklin Pierce Adams. And he wrote that, you know, I would say almost as an afterthought because he needed to fill eight lines of type in the newspaper. What did you find interesting about that poem and the effect that it had on baseball fans? Well, that, I can recite it for you very quickly. These are the saddest of possible words, tinker to Evers to Chance. Trio of bear cubs and fleeter than birds, tinker and Evers and Chance. Ruthlessly pricking our gonfalon bubble, making a giant hit into a double. Words that are heavy with nothing but trouble. Tinker to Evers to Chance. It sings. It, so, yeah, uh, a guy named F.P. Adams, who is a New York columnist um, for the Evening Standard, uh, kind of a gossip columnist. He wasn't a sports writer, um, but he was a Cubs fan. He came from Chicago. And he maintained he wrote that as a kind of a dig 
against uh, his New York cronies who were rooting for the Giants because the night before, um, the Cubs had beaten the Giants with the help of a double play from Tinker to Everett to Chance. And that's what he, where he saw those words in the box score and dashed off that little poem. Well, I wonder how many. I wonder how many people went to the dictionary and looked up Gonfalon. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, uh, Adams later became quite a, a member of the Manhattan Literary. In fact, he was a charter member of the um, Algonquin, Algonquin Club. Yeah, uh, with Dorothy Parker and Robert Benchley and those when who they, they just spent um, every day kind of trying to outwitticize each other, and so that's what he was doing there. He's pulling out this sort of obscure word, Gonfalon, which is Italian. Um, a medieval Italian word for banner, like the banners they would they would raise between from their the knights and different uh, factions of knights. So Gonfalon bubble is essentially his metaphor for pennant fever. Yeah, it's definitely uh, you know it, it helped that you had Tinker to Everest to Chance because I mean uh, previously you had McCormick to Childs to Doyle and it just would not have cut it at it. all. No, right, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about the three uh, three players. Uh, in any order you want to. Uh, they came from diverse backgrounds and had different paths to the majors. And, and personally, I always thought, to me, uh, Johnny Evers was the most interesting of the three. And maybe you don't agree. but Oh, no, I, 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 I tend to agree. He was the first one I started looking into because he came from Troy, New York, um, which is just uh, 100 miles or so away from Cooperstown. So my first stop in my research is to the Hall of Fame and their files and all the players. And then I spent – some time in Troy, and which has got a fascinating baseball history. It goes all the way back to the 1870s. Um, and, and, and his father and uncles were a big part of that history. Um, but the um, but Troy was, they lived in, a, in an enclave of Troy called South Troy, which was essentially an Irish, an Irish immigrant enclave. Um, and they had a very... Um, distinct way of, of um, going about their business <laughs> in, that, in that environment. Uh, they carried a grudge with them from England over their, their Anglo-Saxon overlords. They, uh, the, the phrase uh, I was told that was most prominent down there was, was South Troy against the world. And that's how they felt. And um, so Johnny grew up in that environment as a run of a kid, 120 pounds, five feet, six or seven. Um, but he uh, was a star shortstop for the Troy Trojans um, and uh, got a tryout from the Cubs when the Cubs were near in nearby Philadelphia and uh, went down there and, and uh, stayed with the Cubs for 13 years after that, 12 years, something like that. And I remember reading he was like when he played when he was younger, they actually called him Jack. Yeah, yeah, like, like every Irish – kid named Johnny or John, his nickname was Jack. Uh, but it turns out and I wouldn't able to get into this too much in the book. There was another John Evers of his same age, different build. He was a big burly catcher. And, um, so I think that's what happened. They, they used to call Johnny little Evers, I guess, in contrast to big Evers, uh, big Evers got up to the minor leagues, even had, a, had a tryout with the New York giants. Um, but, uh, never made it to the, the end, but he was a. I think they're the same family. I wasn't able to connect them genealogically together, but they uh, they lived in South Troy. Um, so anyway, I think um, <clears throat> Johnny probably got the name Johnny um, 
when the two of them were playing a lot in the same um, towns in the same circuit, essentially. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, to me, uh, Evers was was the most intense of the three. I mean, his nickname was the Crab, and I remember one sports writer describing him as a, as a just a walking bundle of nerves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was he. Um, he carried, a, like I say, he carried a chip on his shoulder, like a lot of Irish um, immigrant uh, families of his time, and um, he particularly disliked umpires um, for couple reasons because obviously they they uh would rule against him but he thought he knew the rules better than they did and he was probably right he was a, he was actually quite a um studious um reader of the baseball rule book he used to take it to bed with him at night um and uh, anyway so he he would constantly um razz the umpires during the game in fact frank chance said uh uh, once he said, told Tinker, he says, I wish he played in the outfield so I wouldn't have to listen to him all day long. Uh, uh, so he was, yeah, he, but he was a smart, smart as a whip. And, and um, really, as, as he ended up writing a book with Hugh Fullerton, the sports writer, called Touching Second, which was essentially the first Bible of scientific baseball. And this book has charts, has charts all the way through it of all these different graphic uh, representations of how the ball moves in different grooves, as he called them. I mean, it would be a, a safer, safer metric model today, but he was doing it uh, basically on his own native intelligence back then. And, uh, you know, touching second plays right into the, his most uh, famous studying of the rules when, you know, Merkel's boner in 1908. I yes. mean, that's, that's yeah. certainly an episode that, you know, you could certainly recount. Did you find anything in that episode in your research that you hadn't found before? I mean, there was a big flurry for the ball. I mean, and Joe McGinnity got involved. And right, right. So, the, so the play, play, yeah, so the play, well, a couple of things. There's essentially a sequence of events leading up to that game, which um, to me – essentially predained the outcome that they would have to call um, Merkel out for not touching second and therefore disallowed the run that crossed the plate that would have won the game in the bottom of the ninth inning. And uh, umpire Hank O'Day said, um, no, the run doesn't count uh, at the end of the ninth inning. And then they promptly called the game because of darkness, uh, which is every Cub fan knows because it used to happen uh, with recurrent frequency uh, up until they got lights in 1988. When you call a game because of darkness, you have to replay the entire game. It's not like a rainout where you can pick it up where you left off. Right. Um, but anyway, there was a sequence of events. But one thing I did, I don't, I had not seen before was that O'Day, the umpire who uh, made the ruling, again, an umpire that uh, was always cro- at crosswise with Evers, um, a few years later, actually succeeded Evers as manager of the Cubs. O'Day was one of the few umpires who both played, managed, and umpired. So I, I think he was, he was talked. He never talked about this play to a newspaperman until this year. He was manager, and he tried. I think he was trying to downplay Evers' credit for this thing by saying, "Well, it really wasn't Evers' genius." And he, and what he revealed was that he called the play. Um, dead because Joe McGinnity, the first base coach of the Giants, had run onto the field in order to get the ball so that Evers couldn't t- touch second. And O'Day said, that's why we, we disallowed the runs, because of the interference. The coach entered the field, and the play wasn't over. 
So it really wasn't the fact that he that uh, Evers got uh, Merkel out at second. It was the fact that the play wasn't over when McGinnity entered the field, and therefore it was uh, it was called dead at that point. So the run wasn't counted. That's pretty interesting. Plus, uh, O'Day had been talked to by Evers uh, several weeks earlier in Pittsburgh, where a similar play had happened. So he certainly had that play on his mind when it happened again. Yeah, there are all kinds of precedents set for this. And in fact, the um, same, same thing happened in Pittsburgh just a few weeks before. O'Day didn't see it at the time. He was a lone umpire, and he turned his back from home plate. And so he says, well, I didn't see it, so I can't call it. But the Cubs kept pro- protesting the game. Uh, and so it got the National League president, Harry Pulliam, involved. And Pulliam basically said, well, if the umpire had seen it, it definitely would have been an out, and the run wouldn't, couldn't have scored. So he basically laid down the precedent in that Pittsburgh game. He said, so if it happened again, um, that's what the ruling would have to be. Um, but even though the Cubs protested the game, it was, wasn't publicized uh, why they protested. And so it wasn't generally known outside of Pittsburgh, what, what was going on here, although I'm pretty convinced just by McGinnity's uh, action on the field, seeing what there was, what was, Everest was trying to pull off, that they had heard about it through the grapevine. Definitely. Um, Evers being from Troy and, and one of the big heroes of the Irish baseball players back in the 1890s, and, there, and all had been King Kelly, uh, what kind of influence did he have on Evers, if any? Well, Kelly was born in Troy. Uh, Troy was an amazing incubator of baseball players back then. Uh, he actually, Tr- Kelly moved away as a kid, but the, uh, Troy always um, held him up as kind of a native son hero. But he played in the 1880s when baseball really was, you know, a good-natured kind of fun sport. Uh, it was all about the entertainment back then, uh, not so much the competition as just having a good time and giving the fans a good time. And Kelly was the master at it. In fact, Ben Johnson said, uh, who saw both Kelly and Babe Ruth play in his lifetime, said Kelly Kelly was the more popular player than Babe Ruth in his day. Um, the problem was he was also um, a knockdown drunk, and um, he drank to get drunk, and he'd he'd go down to you know um, Madison Square Garden in New York, um, where he, he was playing a lot. And just party all night. And um, he uh, pretty much wasted himself away and died when he was 36 years old. So he never really was a a factor in the 1890s. Um, He died in 92 or 3, something like that. Um, But he had had a definitely, and he played for the White Stockings, Chicago White Stockings, for a number of years. So he was was, uh, well-known from Boston to New York to Chicago. Well, let's talk. Let's move on to uh, Joe Tinker, and he, um, to me, always seemed to be the overlooked guy in the trio. Well, he's probably the, um, in terms of his personal statistics, is probably the least uh, famous. Um, he was not a, recognized as a, a good hitting shortstop. He was recognized as a good shortstop for sure. Um, he grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, he was a year older than Evers. He was born in nineteen eighty. And uh, what was interesting, there's a couple of things about him. He was born in uh, he was born in Muscoda, Kansas, a few miles away from Kansas City on the eastern side of uh, Kansas, to an unwed mother, and uh, who was essentially shamed out of town. And she ended up in Kansas City and hooked up with this kind of itinerant uh, short order cook and butcher by the name of Tinker. 
and um, who uh, and they lived in Kansas City from the time Joe was four years old, at least. <clears throat> and uh, Kansas City was a boom town, a Western boom town. It's kind of on the edge of civilization, really, in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties. Um, and the city leaders realized that they were it, it was growing so fast and and getting so dense that it was almost unlivable. That people didn't want to move to Kansas City because it was so. Um, um, packed with businesses and and um, industry and other things that are going on thing. So the city leaders uh, came up with this uh, one of the first city beautiful campaigns in the country. City beautiful movement was something that kind of swept through a number of American cities in um, in the first decade of the 20th century. But Kansas City was one of the sort of uh, pioneers of this. They hired a um, uh, a protege of Frederick Law Olmsted, um, a guy named George by the name of George Kessler, to essentially design a whole system of parks and boulevards for the city of Kansas City, and still still exists today. Uh, but the idea was to give uh, kids like Joe Tinker a place to play uh, that wasn't in the street, and so he he was kind of one of the first beneficiaries of this um, sort of parkland movement. And then there was also a, a uh, an interesting change taking place in the kind of the moral outlook at the time from a kind of, of a so very strict kind of Protestant work ethic idea that play is a sin and uh, you should spend your si- time improving yourself through work. Um, people like the YMCA, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, um, and an organization called the Society of Christian Endeavor. Um, started promoting an idea of um, what they called muscular Christianity, essentially a theology that encouraged young men in particular to get out and exercise and and improve their their physical um, health as well as their mental and spiritual health. And Joe, I found out, I discovered, was a member of the Society of Christian Endeavor. Um, and it was uh, it was an ecumenical youth movement essentially within the Protestant church churches of the time, kind of across uh, across many denominations, and uh, grew to five million members in a space of ten years at the late nineteenth century. Um, so he was the that was the kind of the, kind of the two different forces going on here the, the the Parkland movement and the muscular Christianity movement that essentially influenced Tinker and his whole outlook on life. And plus, he was he was quite a good player as a youngster, and and uh, you know, two things I didn't know he was a twin, and I also didn't realize he had played third base when he was younger and excelled at it. Yeah, so it's um, uh, that's how he grew up as a as a minor, as as a minor league was a third base. He had a couple of terrible experiences at second base um, while he was working his way up, and so he basically said, "Well, I'm not, my position is third base," and it was Frank Seeley who. Uh, convinced him to move to shortstop because of his speed and range and arm, uh, but he was afraid to at first. Um, he thought he he thought he'd flop at it and get sent back to the minors, and his career be over before it got started. We'll talk about the uh, feud between the two guys, Evers and Tinker. They talked on the field in terms of baseball, but they couldn't stand each other off the field. They barely even talked to each other on the field. Uh, it's, yeah. a, it's a famous feud, you know. This this is kind of one of the great double play combinations in history of baseball. Played side by side for ten years, and for um, eight of those years, didn't talk to each other. 
Um, so it was a feud that um, I think began on Ever's first night in uh, in with the Cubs when he came down from uh, Troy to join the team in Philadelphia. And uh, back then the teams used to dress in the hotel and ride a carriage or a, what they called an omnibus, a horse-driven bus, to the ballpark. And um, when Joe got there, and when Johnny got there, uh, the bus was full. So they made him sit on top. And he had to ride to the ride to the park uh, in, a, in a uniform that was 10 sizes too big for him, number one. Um, and it looked like it. And then he had a terrible game because he hadn't slept all night. So they made him run on the top on the way back to the hotel, and they were laughing at him the whole time. Well, guess who was inside that bus? It was Joe Tinker, who was the rookie before Johnny showed up. So Joe was probably having a, a, a good time at Johnny's expense. Um, and, of course, the Irish uh, never forget and they never forgive. And so three years later, almost to the day, the Cubs were um, on a tr- trip to Cincinnati and they stopped off in the Indiana town of Bedford to play an exhibition game, which they often did back then to earn some money and things like that. And the town of Bedford went whole hog. They um, hired carriages for all the players to ride from the <clears throat> hotel to the ballpark. But Evers and Tinker were, the, were late getting down to the carriages. And so there was only one left, and Evers came down and got in and said, tally-ho, let's, move, let's go to the ballpark, uh, knowing Tinker was uh, still a little behind him. So Tinker had to trudge through a mile of dusty roads to get to the bark park that day. And apparently had some words during warm-ups with each other. And pretty soon on a, on a lazy ground ball, Tinker took it short uh, during practice and threw it about 10 feet away from Evers like he was throwing to the catcher from home to second, according to Evers. Um, and before you knew it, the two of them were uh, on the ground uh, in an all-out fight. Well, the pitcher, Bob Wicker, who's from Bedford. He's the local hotel hero. One of the reasons they were having this game in Bedford is they knew they'd get a crowd to see Wicker. Wicker thinks, oh, my God, they're in a fight. I'm going to go break it up. He gets pulled down into the melee, and and the crowd, seeing their hometown hero getting beat up, thinks or think they're getting beat up, they rush the field. So about half the crowd of 3,000 is out on the field trying to in the middle of this fight. And um, they finally break it up. Uh, they go on and play the game, uh, act like nothing's happened. No one reports the reason for this fight. It got it, it got some national publicity, this, this dust-up, but no one said why. In other words, the missing cab. Hugh Fullerton, the Tribune sports writer, finally revealed it a year later. Uh, but in the meantime, the two of them decided they, they were just not going to talk to each other. That was the only way. They could keep playing side by side as long as they didn't talk to each other, and that's what they did. Uh, and they didn't didn't talk to each other, some say, for 30 years until they had a tearful reconciliation uh, as middle-aged men. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was one of the, one of the oddest um, partnerships in baseball history. Definitely. Well, let's talk about the guy who uh, had to manage these two guys, Frank Chance. I mean, he had quite a history in California, and his mother wanted him to get, so, an, ed- mother wanted him to get an education, but he just loved football and baseball. Yeah, Frank was uh, an, another. So here we got um, 
Evers from the East Coast and the Irish immigrant experience, uh, Tinker from the Midwest and the kind of uh, park parks and recreation experience, and then uh, Frank Chance grew up in Fresno, California, uh, at a time when it was turning from a dusty little farm town into a booming um, market community in the middle of the Central Valley. And uh, what was interesting about him to me is each of his parents came across to California uh, as children on the Oregon Trail by covered wagon. And it was in the his father was his father came first with his grandfather Dennis Chance in 1846, one of the first wave of uh, pioneers. In fact, the uh, they were about two weeks ahead of the Donner Party as they went through the Sierra Nevadas, uh, by my reckoning. Um, but that Oregon Trail experience kind of infused everything about the uh, state of California as it grew up uh, in the late 19th century, and. Frank, I think, was uh, inherited that, that, that uh, not just work ethic, but that will to win, that idea that you could master the universe only through your own effort. And he played everything he could, he could. football, baseball. He was actually a boxer, very well-regarded amateur boxer uh, in Fresno and in, in, in California. And, uh, but he did mountain climbing. He did rope pulling. He did. I mean, he was just—he was a big guy. Six for his day, six feet, hundred ninety pounds. He was a heavyweight in the boxing world. Um, and um, yeah, you know, his parents, his father, um, the one who came across as uh, as a kid, was a very successful businessman in Fresno and wanted him to go to uh, um, get an education like his older brothers had at essentially a prep school up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, but uh, Frank ended up uh, finding a um, summer job as a baseball player in Southern Illinois, and that's how uh, he got spotted by uh, Cap Anson of the White Sockets, and essentially offered a, a job. He was a catcher at the time, and they he, they brought him on as a backup catcher, what they used to call a change catcher, um, and that's what he did for several years before Frank Seeley showed up and said, uh, "I think you should play first base." And Chance thought of himself a catcher. He said, I'll quit baseball unless I catch, even if it's a backup catcher. See, he said, all right, well, I'll just play at first base until I find someone else. And, of course, he never found anyone right. else. And so um, that was the beginning of the uh, Tinker Devers to Chance infield. Well, he certainly was a, uh, a tough guy. I mean, because he once said he had the ability to lick any man on the ball club, and that's, he says, was a success yeah. to being a manager. Yeah, that was kind of half – have, uh, they really respected him, though. They respected him definitely for his uh, strength, um, but also his his determination. He just was he just was the most focused man I've ever imagined. And and for you know fierce competitors like Tinker and Evers and anybody else who was on that team, they they looked up to that. They they, re- they followed him. Um, and he was also a very smart guy. He was also a uh, an amazing athlete for a big guy. He stole eighty some bases um, one year, another sixty another year. So he's he was um, not just big and strong, but he was fast. So he was probably the best all around athlete on the team. And what a pitching staff the Cubs had in those uh, that era too. I mean, you had Mordecai Brown, you had you know Orville Orville, and you know just 
Orville overall, yeah, and uh, Jack Feister, Ed Rolbeck. Right. Um, and yeah, this is a day when um, you didn't have relief pitchers. I mean, it, the relief pitcher was some other starter who'd pitched the day before. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, Mordecai Peter Centennial Brown, uh, otherwise known as Three Finger Brown because of his mangled right hand, which gave him one of the most unhittable curveballs uh, in in uh, baseball history, uh, is in the Hall of Fame as a result, was, uh, was along with Christy Mathewson um, uh, and, uh, and Joe McGinnity, one of the best pitchers in, of, the, of his era and one of the best of all time. His ERIA was down in the ridiculous numbers, like 1.2. Well, it seemed, seemed like on that Cubs team, if your ERA was higher than 2.5, you weren't going to get to play. Well, that's true. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, but they didn't score that many runs either back then. This was the dead ball era, so um, they were all about scoring that one extra run. It's going to get the advantage, and so they did everything from bunting to stolen bases to hitting runs to taking the extra base whenever they could, um, because they, they basically were just always trying to get somebody in position to score on whether it was a, a hit or an error that would get that one run across that could make the difference in the game. And then you had a guy like Tinker who wasn't noted for hitting except uh, when he faced Christy Matthews and he sort of owned the guy. For some inexplicable reason, Joe Tinker, who was a, essentially a 270 hitter, lifetime hitter, uh, hit in the high 300s one year, even 400, against Christy Matthewson, one of the great pitchers of all time. In fact, Matthewson, on the first page of his autobiography, the first page of his autobiography, mind you, immediately does a shout out to Tinker and said, I could never get the guy out. Uh, <laughs> unclear why, except that Tinker, uh, you know, Matthewson had what he called the, the fadeaway and Tinker um, got a longer bat and crowded the plate and just basically waited until the fadeaway came so he could go get it and it will do it. Crazy. Let's uh, drop back just a minute about uh, Frank Seeley because um, he was very underrated and he finally got to the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee, I think you had told me, 1999 or so. Um, and he was yeah. a rever- revered figure back then. I mean, you know, we tend to forget that he was the, you know, the godfather to this team that, that became so successful in the 1900s. Well, he had, he had earned his way into the Hall of Fame before he even joined the Chicago team, frankly. He, in the, <clears throat> the 1890s, Eight of the ten pennants were won either by the Boston Bean Eaters or the Baltimore Orioles. The Orioles won three. The other five were run by the Boston team that was managed by Frank Seeley. Uh, and uh, he, he finally departed. He's from New England. He's a short, balding, uh, very intellectual type of man, wore a, a handlebar mustache that was at that time kind of out of its uh, day when most most men were clean shaven. Um, and, uh, but he was, a, again, a practitioner of clean scientific baseball, but had it, uh, was really known then, and always has been as a, as a talent scout. He could, he could recognize who was a good player and where they should play as a, evidenced by the fact that he repositioned all three of these guys, uh, as soon as he found out, it, got, got to the, got to control the team. Um, but he had, um, and he and he rebuilt the team, and the team started winning in 1903. He joined the joined the team in 1902. 03, they started winning, 
04 and 05, uh, they finished second in 04. They were in second place in 05 until, until um, one of the sad things happened. It was he was a very frail physical health. And um, he had to leave the team and go to, to Colorado, um, what turned out to be tuberculosis. And I um, thought at first it was going to be a temporary thing, but um, he left the team in mid-1905. Frank Chance became the interim player manager, and Seeley never returned and ended up dying in uh, 1909 um, at the age of 40-something. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have that at my fingertips, but uh, it was uh, a tragic situation because he really was uh, one of the great uh, baseball minds and was finally voted into the Hall of Fame in 1999 uh, by the Veterans Committee. And, you know, we talk, we've talk. we been talking about the Giants and the Cubs, but the other major power during that era, even though they didn't win, they only won two pennants, were, were the Pittsburgh Pirates and Hannes Wagner. Yeah, those three teams were amazing, uh, especially in 1908 when the, the three of them were in the pennant race to the, literally the very last two days of the season. Uh, and it was a back and forth, uh, up and down uh, race to the very end. Uh, and then the Pirates won in 1909. Um, even though the Cubs had won 104 games in 1909, Pirates won even more and finished first that year. So, um, yeah, there was, they were the, they were the three, uh, premier teams of the national league through that whole decade. Very much so. Tell me, uh, what was the, uh, the most challenging part of, about your research? It was, it was a lot of fun. I have to tell you, I, I call it like my daily time travel. I would just. Transport myself back into um, um, this this part of American history that is uh, not well known. There aren't a lot of um, there aren't any that I could find papers from, uh, in the family, so I did a lot of genealogical research on my own. I, I um, um, essentially built family trees for each of the players um, and and Seely, uh, trying to understand who they were, where they came from, who they were connected to. Um, I did, um, I live in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, so I'm six blocks from the Library of Congress. So fortunately, I had access to a treasure trove of, of uh, books. I used a lot of uh, history books written in the early 20th century about the uh, mid and late 19th century, which is kind of an interesting, there's kind of an arm's length distance between those historians and the time they were writing about, especially on the city histories of Fresno, Kansas City, and Troy. And then I, uh, I just poured through newspapers. Um, fortunately, you know, we now have um, hundreds of newspapers digitized online and searchable. And so it, rather, as opposed to sitting and, and scrolling through microfilm where you can, your, your brain goes dead after about 15 minutes, you can actually use reporting techniques, good reporting techniques, right. uh, to make connections, to connect dots, and then search out uh, different things, and and then find. So I was able to find some jewels of of newspaper articles that I would never have known about, or or thought to look for, you know, um, just because of the the beauty of digital searching. What uh, what did you learn that you didn't know before? To me, it seemed like there would be a bunch. I mean, well, there was there was a lot. Uh, um, and a lot of it is just, like I say, it's connecting the dots. It's, the outlines of the story have been told and 
over and over for years. Um, but um, just getting into understanding how where each of them came from, the kind of culture they were they were a product of the, the local cultures they were products of. Um, what uh, what Chicago was like when they all came together in Chicago and that city that Chicago had had grown from, by, by had doubled in population since the 1893 uh, Columbian Exposition, the World's Fair of 1893. By 2003, it had gone from one million to two million population, uh, and it was out of control. Um, it was uh, so it was the beginning of the progressive reform movement in city politics throughout the country, and Chicago was one of the, those examples. Uh, and baseball actually played a role in helping to create essentially a civic identity and a, and a cohesion to all these hundreds of immigrant uh, communities that had uh, were speckled about Chicago at the time. And uh, not only that, uh, newspapers re- recognized, I think, that um, sports played a big role. And, and sports editors, I mean, editors of the newspaper started assigning more space to, uh, to devote to sports. Is, that's some, something of it. Well, you couldn't, they couldn't get, people couldn't get enough, as it turned out, uh, of sports. And, you know, a, a ballpark, even now, by this time, especially the, by 1906, when the Cubs really started winning under chance, um, they, they, would, they could draw thirty to 40,000 fans to a, a ball game, particularly against the Giants. Well, West Side Grounds, where they played, was, this was before Wrigley Field, only held 10,000. So uh, but even, even 40,000, if you could get them in there, uh, there'd be ten, another 10,000 outside trying to, trying to get word of what's going on inside the ballpark. Uh, newspapers at the time, Tribune, Hearst Papers, couple of those were about eight or nine newspapers in Chicago had circulations in the hundreds of thousands. Um, so that's how people stayed in touch. There was no radio, uh, no TV, obviously. Um, but there was the telegraph. And so um, you could actually, uh, ball teams figured out and uh, newspapers that they could develop a symbiotic process where they it set up a telegraph operator inside the ballpark and report every play back to the newspaper in real time. Um, and so the newspapers, for one thing, uh, learned they could uh, print partial scores of an afternoon ball game in their evening edition and sell papers because people were so desperate to find out what was going on. Um, they also started creating, uh, this one thing that was wonderful thing, so the electric, the electric scoreboard, the Tribune did this, where they'd put up a, a uh, a board replicating a, a diamond with electric lights and a t- with the telegraph operator sending the feeds of every pitch and play. And one day they had 10,000 people sitting out on the streets of Chicago watching this scoreboard of a game being played uh, in New York at the time. It's amazing how our technology has changed. How, it's cha- how the technology has changed, but the, the motivation and the need for the information and the desire for that real-time uh, immediacy hasn't changed. It, it goes right back to that time. That's true. And the sports writers back then also started to you know, write pieces about players and, and um, glorified them. You know, Matthewson was big six and uh, Chance the peerless leader. And, and they all you know, wrote these stories that would resonate with the public. Well, it was the it was the dawn of the the um, the era of the sports writer. I mean, it was a the the golden age of sports writing. Many people think come, came a decade or so later with Grantland Rice and 
and uh, Haywood Hale Bruin and some others. And um, but you know the 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 fathers of those of that generation were were operating in this decade uh, in both New York and Chicago in particular, but this all around the country. And they, yeah, you're right. They were getting more space to write. They were getting freedom to write what we call feature stories now. Uh, uh, Charles Dryden, the beat writer for the Tribune, um, was sort of had a, a gimlet eye for the oddball things going on. And oftentimes he would ignore the game and just write about that, like the weird uniforms of the Boston team as they came to town or things like that. It was, it was very funny. Um, <clears throat> Hugh Fullerton, who many people might uh, a name recognize from the, um, the movie Eight Men Out, where he was played by Studs Terkel. Uh, he was the, the sports writer who sniffed out the Black Sox scandal um, in 1919. Well, in the, 19, the first decade, Hugh Fullerton, who was, didn't look anything at all like Studs Terkel, he was actually a tall, thin, urbane gentleman, was known as a what they called a dopester. He was, he was in the dugouts and in the locker rooms getting the inside dope about games. And he was one of the first to write about sort of the scientific precepts of baseball. As I said, he co-authored a book with Johnny Evers about that. And he ended up writing a lot of mags for a lot of national magazines, which were essentially the television of the day. These, there was dozens of national magazines that were just came out weekly that were uh, filled with human interest stories and baseball became one of the things humans were interested in. So, well, here's the uh, here's the part of the interview that, where I ask you what I missed. Is there anything that you'd like to add about the book that uh, we haven't talked about yet? Um, <clears throat> well, we've we've kind of touched on a thing. I think the uh, uh, the thing that interested me, and that, like I say, was a, was the question I was trying to answer, which is what is what is a hold this team has on me? Um, was this is this is when baseball came of age. Uh, as a as a sport, uh, as a as a civic activity, uh, and it's also when when um, baseball fans came of age, and you know we we now look at our society and then see it as a sort of a sports crazed society. Well, that didn't exist before this period and this team, uh, not to the extent it 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 became then. And um, to me, that's why it's why why what is interesting about this is that baseball is such a key part of our national culture, uh, even though it's been essentially overtaken and, and maybe eclipsed by football in the past 50 years, uh, for the first 50 to 60 years of the 20th century, um, the national sport was baseball, and it is what helped define our culture. Uh, not completely, and didn't cause it, but I, what was interesting, interesting to me is how they uh, worked in parallel um, to, um, to essentially plant the seeds of what we have today. So, uh, looking ahead now, what is, uh, your next project? Do you have another book in mind or? I've got a couple of ideas. I'm, I, um, am uh, not sure I can pull them off, uh, or if somebody else may have beaten me to it. Um, one of the things I'm interested in, uh, a lot, I've done a little bit of research and I don't know if this is something I can do, um, is the early life of Ernie Banks. Um, People forget people. People think of Ernie Banks mainly for from what from the 1960s when he was kind of the good-natured, happy-go-lucky Mister Cub. Um, but uh, the 1950s when he came up 
if you had just if time had stopped in 1960 and you looked at who the great players were of, of the time, including Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Roberto Clemente, Frank Robinson, all the African-Americans and, uh, who came up in the 50s, you would have said, like you would say today about Mike Trout, Ernie Banks was the best of the lot. Um, and then he, you know, he went into some some decline, not complete. When when Mays and Aaron and Robinson all and Clemente all kind of came into their own in the 1960s. So anyway, that's that's what interests me is that, and Ernie was recognized at this time. He was he was named most valuable player in 1958 and 1959, playing for a sub 500 team, um, which is you know astounding to think about. Um, but anyway, that's my thought. <laughs> And then injuries to him, you know, had to force him to move from shortstop to first, first base. He moved so. short to first. Uh, Leo Drosher came in, who hated the idea that Ernie was uh, the star of the team because Leo always wanted to be the star. Right. One said about Leo, he wanted to be the uh, groom at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. Uh, <laughs> it's true. That's that's definitely Leo. So um, I might. I'm, I'm thinking of mainly maybe maybe as a young adult book. Um, that might be because it's a, it's a fascinating story of a man growing up in segregated America in the 1940s and 50s. Definitely. Well, that's great. It's been a very interesting interview, and we appreciate you taking the time. Well, my pleasure. I uh, enjoy talking about this topic, and uh, I'm a big fan of your show. So it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. So we've been speaking with David Rapp, who's the author of Tinkered Everest to Chance, The Chicago Cubs, and The Dawn of Modern America. And again, thank you, David, for being on the show. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Books and Sports Podcast. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you for joining us. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters.